Welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast, the official podcast of SCAF, the Strength and Conditioning Association of Professional Hockey. My name is Dave Rosales, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Batenza, along with our guest today, Scotty Livingston, for episode number 107 of the podcast and episode number 9 of our SCAF alumni series. Scotty has over 30 years of experience in the human performance industry. Currently, he is the owner and co-founder of Reconditioning HQ, which encompasses courses, live courses, including the International Hockey Performance Summit coming up in June. Uh, it encapsulates his podcast, Leave Your Mark Podcast, uh, live courses, mastermind, lots of resources, all about human performance. Previously, he worked in the National Hockey League as a strength conditioning coach slash athletic trainer for over a decade between three teams, the New York Islanders, the New York Rangers, and the Montreal Canadiens. In this episode, we talk about Scott's philosophy with training, with continuing education, we even talk about astrology. We get into a lot of really fun stories from his NHL career from Long Island uh, to the Rangers to Montreal. It's a, a really fun episode. Scotty can tell he hosts a podcast. He's very well spoken. And I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as Mike and I did. So without further ado, here is Mike Potenza and Scott Livingston. Scott, welcome to the Hockey Strength Podcast. And Mike, welcome back. Thank you both for being here. Scotty, great to have you. Scotty, we were, we were just we were you were just reading me my uh, my astrology chart. So I, I would I would like to start there. How did you? <laughs> this is a bit off topic, but how did you get into uh, astrology and, and and all that stuff? Well, it's funny. I always um, liked astrology. Just you know, kind of hey, read the, the my mom would read it to me or something, and I go, wow, that's kind of neat, you know. And I, but it was just a passing interest. And every so often, I'd pick up an astrology book or a newspaper and read something. And then I was in New York after my second divorce. And uh, kind of at a, at a low point, and we can probably talk about it later on, but I just lost my job with the Rangers. I was uh, divorced, just had a car accident. I was kind of like, what the hell's going on in my life? And I was down at a bookstore and I walked in and this book, The Day You Were Born, was on the, this bookshelf. And um, basically, it's a book written by a woman from this, New York who I interviewed on Leave Your Mark, Linda Joyce. And um, I start, I pick it up and to to sort of preface for probably 10 years before this, I'd had on my desktop, that's aging myself because nobody has desktops anymore, but I, on my desktop, I had the my favorite saying taped to the top of my desktop, which is some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? Which is actually a Hemingway quote that uh, Ted um, Kennedy spoke uh, about to, uh, Robert Kennedy's funeral, but it was uh, Robert Kennedy's favorite saying. So it became my favorite saying because it really resonated for me. So segue forward, I pick up this book and I flip to December 3rd, which is my birthday, Sagittarius, and I'm a Sagittarius 3. So I start to read the purpose and I'm like, wow, that's that sounds a lot like who, who I am in my inside. Then the quote, because it always has a quote, I just read you yours, was some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? So I'm like, holy S-H-I-T, I'm buying the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so then when I bought the, when I started the podcast, I was like, you know, this will be fun. I'll just read everybody's their thing. And you know, it's funny, but eight, eight, ten out of ten times, people go, whoa, wow, that was, uh, that was pretty crazy, you know? And then, then you'll have the people who are relatively skeptical and go, well, I could read anything in any one of them. And, you know, it's fun. So I have fun with it a little bit, so. Yeah, this the what like all right. I live in New York City. I'm a single guy in New York, so a lot of a lot of you know uh, progressive women live here as well and are very very into this thing. So I've I've had experience because they they assume I'm skeptical, and because I'm a Libra man, 
they like assume, I, I guess, I guess that's part of my thing. And this is why I say, I say, well, just because we don't have scientific data to prove it or anything doesn't make it inherently wrong. Like a lot of science is discovering innovations. Right. And, uh, so the way I, the way at least I conceptualize is we don't know if it's right or wrong just because we don't have data for it. And like, uh, if something like aligns with aligns with you, then you can kind of take that narrative and run with it. And if it can help you in your life, then, then great. So, well, you know, I look at it like, um, I don't know whether the actual writings are completely, you know, correct, so to speak, but to say that there isn't some kind of um, resonant change, like we know now through research that the moon definitely has an effect on things like mood, energy, et cetera, because, you know, it's actually creating the title uh, you know, realities of our planet. So, you know, if it can move water, it can probably move, uh, you know, the energies inside our body. So all this stuff is happening all the time. We know that energy is a, an element of who we are and how, how we're manipulated. So who's to say that, you know, where the planets were didn't have some kind of effect on how we come out. And I'm, all, I'm always curious as to why, you know, if it was all about parent or like what your upbringing would be then we would all be if we had siblings we'd all be the same as our siblings and we're absolutely not we're all different right so there is obviously there's some genetic stuff there's a whole bunch of different factors that figure into who we are as people right this is fun this is this is a really fun place to start i want to you're going to talk about the nhl we're talking about astrology (laughs) (laughs) the astrology astrology. that is trying you know We should do we should do one of these on every GM in the league. Know more about what to expect, right? (laughs) Why why don't we Why don't we start to start to get back on topic? I want to ask you about uh, the beginning of your career, and you have some really interesting experiences. Uh, You worked um, pulling up your LinkedIn, which I did some research for. (laughs) You You were a lecturer and lab instructor. You were a Mm -hmm. clinical athletic therapist, and you also concurrently with. um, Working at Concordia, you were also their strength and conditioning coach. So I'm curious uh, what skill sets you learned at, at those previous jobs and how that set you up then to work uh, specifically in hockey and strength and conditioning. Yeah, well, probably unlike um, many of the SNC guys that you, you'll have on the podcast, and a little bit like Reg, obviously, um, Reg Grant. I was an AT to begin with. Mike Boyle's the same. Like we we started out as in the States, you guys call them athletic trainers in Canada, we call them athletic therapists. And so my education was to become an athletic therapist. And I finished school. And to be honest with you in Canada, I mean, Canada is always we we haven't had the same kind of um, call it capacity to get job opportunities in that that profession or in strength conditioning. Uh, simply because, you know, the NCAA is a big juggernaut for these opportunities, at least it was, and, and that's changed over the last 30 years, but that doesn't really exist much in Canada. And certainly when I graduated, it didn't exist at all. And I can sort of, you know, elaborate on that a little bit, but so I went through athletic therapy, you wanted to be an athletic therapist. It was very hard to get jobs. I had to work in a couple of private clinics as a therapist for a couple of years. And fundamentally you were working kind of as a sidebar to a physical therapist who was kind of, you were kind of helping them and working with them. And I was a little disillusioned actually with the profession in the beginning. I loved working with athletes and sports and everything but I, I didn't really know what what this was all going to end up as and and strength and conditioning was really just a something I did as a pastime in the back I always lifted weights I played football to a pretty high level 
I was recruited to play university ball, but decided uh, my marks weren't good enough and I should go to school and, and study. So I did that. And, and so I always lifted and that was always a part of who I was. So I was actually uh, going to a YMCA probably in 1988 and I walked into an office and there was all these NSCA journals on the desk. And I was kind of like, well, what's the NSCA? I have no idea what this is at this point. And pick it up and I start reading and I'm like, wow. And then they, and then they have an exam and I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. I can get certified as a strength coach. Man, that's kind of cool. So I started digging into it a little bit more. And at the time there were no exams in Canada. You had to go to the States to get certified. So I went down to Connecticut. Uh, wrote my exam at, uh, in Connecticut, uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, which if you've ever been to New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale is, it's a crappy town with this beautiful <laughs> university in the middle of it. And you're kind of like, okay, there's a burnout car over here and there's Yale over there. That's interesting. So Not I went hell, down but the... you can see it from there. <laughs> <laughs> so I did my exam, got certified. and uh, But even after I got certified, I was kind of not... I was struggling getting jobs. I actually quit athletic therapy. I kind of gave it up for about six, eight months at one point. Started working as a manager in a sports store. And I was working as a manager in a sports store and a friend of mine who was the head therapist at the University of Concordia, who I'd worked with when I was a student, Ron Rappel walks into the this, this sports store one day with his wife and they're looking at clothes and he starts telling me that he wants to hire an assistant. And I said to him, you know, why don't we look at you hiring me as the assistant and I'll also be a strength coach because I just did my certification exam. Thing didn't exist. There was no such thing as a strength coach at a university in Canada at the time. You would occasionally see guys who were ex-offensive linemen strength coaching the football team or whatever at the school. Certainly in the States, it was a much bigger thing at that point, but in, in Canada, you just didn't see it. So he was like, yeah, that, that, could, that could work. So I basically quit my job or I... I I don't know if I quit or I asked my boss to fire me because I had to, in order to get unemployment insurance um, for a year, I, I basically, it's the only time in my life I ever took unemployment insurance. I took unemployment insurance. I was married to another gal at the time. Um, I was married to a girl who was Greek. And um, if you've ever seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that was my first wedding and my first rela wedding relationship. Watch that. It's like 80% true of what my life was like. So her and I are together. Uh, I get the university to pay her $5,000 for the year for me to work as the strength coach AT. The, I take unemployment insurance. So that by the end of the first year, the, then the, the government, because you've created a job, gives subsidizes an extra 5k and buys a computer. So the computer I talked about that I had on my thing was actually paid for by the federal government as part of a, an employment program. So I get this job started and I'm making like 10K one year. And then I, to you mentioned, I start to teach. I'm teaching to kind of gather money. I'm working intramural hockey at 12 midnight, score, score clocking and stuff to make money. I'm putting all these things together to make a living. <laughs> this is early 90s, right? Um, and that's my, that's, so what did I learn from that? I learned to be, you know, uh, resilient and to, to figure things out. And to be quite honest, we had an 800 square foot gym for about 275 athletes at Concordia. So you can imagine this is a very small space with very little like crappy equipment. So I used to run beer batches and I called them, this was the era of um, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger and Saturday Night. They used to do this spoof on Schwarzenegger on Saturday Night Live where they go, we're going to pump you up. So they Hans, would always was say- Was it Hans thing. and Franz? Hans and Franz, we're yeah, going yeah, to pump yeah. you up. So yeah. I called the bashes, you can ask Reggie about them, the pump you up bashes. And what I did was I had this girl um, take um, a gal that I went to school with. She was an artist. She took the original Terminator um, poster and she redrew it onto a piece of paper. And this is the days before the internet and all the other crap like that. So I had to mimeograph these 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 pictures of these drawn hand-drawn pictures of Arnold Schwarzenegger with his gun and this thing would say pump you up bash and everything and I would go and staple them to to trees all over the campus and I would sell tickets to all the athletes and every time I'd run a bash I'd, I'd take the front door and then the bar the school campus bar would take the booze side of it so I would make a grand $1,200 something like that and I would go out and buy weight plates or dumbbells or and I refitted the gym I do I did I think about 13 beer bashes one of them was uh, all you could drink it was like 13 bucks all you could drink all night long there was uh, you know replace all these different things so I had a lot of fun with that that's how I raised money for the gym and uh, I actually had to change the poster at one point because there was this, I mean, it's a terrible story, but there was a professor who went ballistic on campus and actually shot some, some people on campus and killed them. And uh, so the next time I go to do the, po the, the, the thing, my, the, my friend who's the head therapist, they got this poster with the gun and he goes, Scotty, I don't think that's a good idea to have the gun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. so I got her to redraw it with a bottle and which was even better actually so he's holding like a Budweiser bottle, bottle and so I earned I learned to be resilient I learned to be you know the 800 square foot gym I had to figure out you know how to train athletes in a very small space with a limited amount of equipment and to be honest with you I feel that's probably one of the reasons um, you know of my development that I look back really helped me be a better person, better person professionally later on, because I didn't grow up with all the bells and whistles. I learned to do it with as little as possible and figure it out, you know? So I know that's a long-winded answer to your question, but hopefully it gives people some perspective on the early years. Uh, it is great about resiliency, Scotty. And, and, I, you know, I, I had a question in mind, but it, it's, it, I'm going to, I'd rather ask this one. I was going to ask later, but to the to the young strength coaches out there, you mentioned um, I'm going to put all these I'm going to put all these jobs or or roles together to to just to make it work, right? And I think that's we've David and I have said that's critical to to the growth of of a young professional. Um, anyway, but how difficult is that now? Like knowing looking back and. Could you do that same thing now? Like, like, is it, it, do you just find a way or, or has our world and our profession, the profession, the world around our profession just got so difficult, expensive, less, op maybe not less opportunities, but just, just, just it is a challenge more now than it was in the past to do those types of things. Yeah, I, I, I feel for today's generation a lot because um, on one side, um, the information that's available is unbelievable. Like, if you want to, if you want to be technically knowledgeable in this field rapidly, it's 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 all there for you. Um, you know, all the experience, all the knowledge, all the information, it's all right there for you. 
um, which it wasn't there for, you know, if you if you talk to Mike or you talk to, you know, myself or other guys our age, um, you know, we had to, we had to, there wasn't anything, there wasn't, there weren't journals that you went and looked at. You're looking at muscle magazines and you're looking at, you know, you're trying things and you're doing stuff. So, and you're trying to create jobs and, and, and you have no idea what it means. Like, like I said, I had no template for what it was. Now it seems like, you know, and it's, it's a bit of a bee in my bonnet a little bit. I see the whole thing of, you know, you've got to go and do your master's. Then it almost seems like everybody's got to do their PhD now if they want to work in this industry. And you've got to have all these different certifications and all these expectations. And yet the salary structures for a lot of these jobs have not really upramped that significantly over time. And you kind of wonder what's the purpose of all this. So I, I feel for a younger per person now kind of looking at that, it's, it's quite demand, a quite a demanding profession that hasn't necessarily risen, risen in terms of how people get paid. Now, you can certainly, there are anomalies in it in the NCAA. There's some people making some serious money at some of the big universities. And there's probably a few pro jobs that have pr pretty good salaries associated with them. But still, even, you know, I know I, I don't you know, prepared to know what Mike makes as, as a living or what I, well, I don't, I'm not going to talk about what I made, but I can tell you that I didn't make, and Mike would probably say the same thing. If you actually calculated the number of hours you work to the salary that you make, you don't make very much per hour, you know, so you might be making a, a relatively good salary, but in the grand scheme of things, if you're compared to other guys your age, who are in say the tech industry or something like that, you're kind of scratching your head as to why did I do this, you know? So do I think it's possible? Sure, it's possible. But I think people have, I think younger people today are struggling with the why of, of doing it. Daddy, I have an accountant who's actually my wife and she reminds me every day on uh, <laughs> how I don't make enough per hour for the, the hours I work. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. But I'll just speak to my experience as a young person who's kind of like come up through and kind of like piece this strange career together. I think young people, young strength coaches, we have so many opportunities like with, with the internet and like the resources we have. And like, we don't have, I don't have, I've never had to do a beer bash. Like, like I've never had to do that to make money. Like, but because we have the internet and because we have so much access to information, I think young strength coaches like myself and even people younger than me, like, because we have those resources, we can kind of do whatever we want. Like how many well-known coaches are there now who like, who haven't really gone to school and don't have their masters. Like, so I, I do think there is more opportunity and it just takes like some creativity, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you would probably know better than I, David, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't purport to really live in that, in that, um, in that pool anymore. So it's not really what I recognize as I think really at, at, at any stage, if you're really willing to, to hustle and work hard at things and you enjoy what you do fundamentally i think you'll have some level of success and i think the opportunities to parlay that with you know all these different kinds of things whether it's online education teaching people things doing stuff you know who knows what what it is you know there's so many different ways that i don't even, i'm not even aware of to make money so you know i think people are TikTok. doing well out there yeah I'm, tiktok I'm exactly don't, don't do that <laughs> well and again that i i love that aspect of being resilient as you are a young professional and climbing through the ranks but we've talked about it before like those experiences are vital and i've said it and i'll continue to say that like all the experiences i've had i've been blessed with have gotten me you know to to where i have and and whatever success i've been able to have in my career and, and 
professional life. So, you know, I think if the young listeners are listening, then, you know, it's, it's part of, it's part of the process as a generic term, you know, but, but those opportunities are going to be great. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to only make you stronger and help you learn and diversify yourself more anyway. So. Absolutely. I, I think if you don't do a lot of that stuff, you, it's what I meant about the, you know, I think if you come out of school and your first job is in, you know, some big NCAA school and you're working football and you're in the strength, you know, gym there and you, you know, you're following the program and the process and, you know, the systematics of everything. It's, it, there's not really this opportunity. You're not forced to buy the constraints to actually diversify your portfolio of understanding. And so then I think you become sort of limited in your capacity. Whereas if you're forced to kind of ebb and flow and try and do and see, you know, I'm, I'm much more of a horizontalist than I am a verticalist in the sense of education. I think you need to try a lot of different things, do a lot of different things. That gives you a better sense of how to explore the proposition of, uh, you know, whether it's training programming or uh, injury management or what have you. Like, I've been lucky enough in my career, what, you know, I worked hockey, but I also have worked with a huge portfolio of different Olympic athletes. I worked at a university, so I worked with all the different varsity athletes at the time, some of whom would never lift a weight. Like, we had women's programs that never trained before. So I, I experienced all these different things, which kind of inform me differently about when I look at an athlete, I don't know, you know, I think a lot of strength conditioning coaches, especially in the States, you kind of come up through this big four kind of mindset of football, hockey, baseball, basketball, and all of those athletes are running athletes. So you learn a lot of your contextual performance mindset around sprint mechanics, uh, COD and, and, and big, big lifts in the gym. And fundamentally, you know, there's a lot of other athletes out there that don't do any of that stuff. I work with skiers. They're, they're not the same. They're not, they don't run, they don't ambulate. Right. So it's a different animal, but you, you can't all of a sudden just take the whole methodology that you've used in training football players and impact it into training, you know, a skier or even a hockey player, which is a different thing too, you know? Scotty, um, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about like your early influences, your, your kind of mentors from the educational side, but also any coaches, you know, sport coaches from early on in your career. Well, um, I was, I would say influenced in my early years uh, as a strength conditioning practitioner, one of the big methodological influences uh, was Charlie Pollican. I never became a Pollican sort of um call it the believer sort of side of things, but I always really respected the, the knowledge paradigm that he brought to the table and, and the, the, the inquisitive nature of, of his style. So I learned a lot from Charlie back in the day. Um, you know, I learned about periodization from uh, an Eastern European uh, gentleman who came to Canada, Tudor Bampa, and was at York University for a long time. And so that's where I kind of learned my periodization methodology early. I read a few of the, the, the texts by some of the Russians uh, and, and sort of in, inputted some of that into my methodology. And I, and I would say in my early years, uh, you know, those were, those were sort of the influences of the methodological paradigm of the work. And then from the NCA, NSCA, it would, you know, you had Kramer and Fleck and all those guys who were, you know, the, the guys who built the essentials textbook and you would read about their stuff and see them at the NSCA um, and then uh, Pete Twist was uh, one of the early guys in the NHL. So I learned a lot from Pete early on, specifically around hockey. 
Um, so those guys were drivers of, I would say, my strength conditioning side of things. Then on the therapeutic side, because as I said, I started out as a therapist and then kind of worked strength conditioning and my craft around strength conditioning and kind of started to bring those two things together. And um, through the 90s, I started to realize how much these two worlds actually had a, a symbiotic nature. And, and because I was wearing both hats, I could see how they connected with one another. I started doing sort of my own call it movement screen process. I call it more of a movement assessment that I would use then go into sort of a, a breakdown process that I was doing through the early to mid nineties. And I, and then I went down to the NSCA conference and I actually saw Gray Cook and Lee Burton do their first presentation of the FMS. I think it was 1996 in Vegas um, about the FMS. And I was, I was struck by it because it, for me, it was, these guys were talking my language at that point. I was, we need to look at movement better. We need to understand it better. And I struck up a conversation with Gray, got to know Gray, brought Gray up to Canada to, to a couple of conferences that I ran, in fact, ran, a hockey conditioning conference in 1998 uh, and 1999, just as I came into the league. And, um, you know, Mike uh, Boyle, I, I never, I never learned from Mike. I learned around Mike. Uh, Mike was uh, an inspirational person to me. Um, I was actually a Boston Bruins fan. And I heard about Mike back in the days when he was working with Cam Neely. And I, I heard about what he was doing with Cam and it was kind of, I was cutting my teeth as a strength coach at Concordia and kind of watching what he was doing. And he, I found what he was doing kind of inspirational in the league and the business. And so Mike was a bit of an inspiration that way. It was nice to get to know him while I was in the league a little bit. And, and since um, a lot of the guys that performed better over the years uh, started to, you know, I would go to those, those summits or I met Chris Poirier back in 98, I think at a, an SCA conference, Chris came up and um, sponsored the two hockey summits that we did back then. And, you know, started to see those different people. So there's, it's been a hodgepodge of a lot of different people that sort of influenced me over my career. And my, my flow started to get into more movement, movement assessment, movement design, merging the two worlds and, uh, my affinity became more about how I made people more resilient and, and how they, you know, that, that it, Im, Im, implicated in their performance. So. That's great. Yeah. It shows diverse. I mean, it definitely shows your diversity of who you're kind of pulling ideas from, which I think we all have to do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can't just fall into one you know, dogmatic kind of philosophy. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's come up a bunch. What Mike just said about not getting, not like, Oh, I'm a ex X person that's definitely mm -hmm. come up a bunch. And I can also see just hearing you talking how that, how that kind of evolved into your whole reconditioning philosophy about um, you know, taking like the rehab principles and applying them to like performance as well. And I'm curious, you're learning all this stuff from all these people and, and different philosophies. And now you're going to taking this into the NHL and, and maybe take us back to that first season of the Islanders uh, or, or Rangers Canadians. Just, just what were those, what were those lessons like Um going from a young strength coach in Concordia, learning all this stuff to now applying this to uh, these athletes who maybe had never even had a, a full-time strength coach before. Yeah, it's interesting. The NHL was a humbling experience for me. It was a very um, strange experience as I look back and then it, and it had lots of different layers to it. Uh, I, I was kind of, I had worked at Concordia for eight years and I was starting to kind of feel like I couldn't, the university didn't have a lot of money um, we didn't have a great facility, as I mentioned, and that wasn't looking very positive. And I had started talking to the guys who were the therapists with the Montreal Canadiens at the time. And 
again, uh, all the Canadian teams at that point, the only strength coach in the, on a Canadian team was Pete Twist with the Vancouver Canucks. And this is in 1998. Uh, the NHL was starting to hire them. You know, had Doug McKinney down in, in Buffalo. Mike was in Boston. There was a few different teams that had, had guys at that point. And so I, I reached out to the guys, the Canadians, there's a guy named Gaetan Lefebvre who was that therapist and, and Gates and his assistant, John Shipman. And at that time, like, there was kind of this skepticism in the business about did we really need strength coaches and what is that all about? And what's, what's this animal in the room going to do, you know? And so a lot of the guys who were in the industry, um, a lot of the head therapists in the league actually weren't certified. It was kind of a weird thing as well. So you had, you know, a guy like Gates wasn't a certified AT. And so I would say some egos got in the way of, of whether people were getting hired or didn't get hired. Also sort of talked to my buddies at the Toronto Maple Leafs. It was a, Chris Broadhurst was there and a guy named uh, Brett Smith. And again, they weren't hiring anybody. So it was kind of like this, you know, floating things around. And then Gates, I think, appreciated the fact that I was interested in the role. And so I went down to an NSCA conference in 98, um, which funny enough was, uh, was when the year that uh, Mike Tyson got his ear bitten by uh, Vander Holyfield and uh, come back from that, from that, um, NSCA uh, conference and I get a phone message and in those days you had the message machine right I pushed the message machine and there's this message from um, um, Richie Campbell who's the head therapist with the uh, New York Islanders at the time and Richie now I think works for the Portland uh, Winterhawks as their head, head therapist he lives out in Portland so Richie's like yeah Scott I heard about you can you come down we need that we want to interview you uh mike santos talked to me so gates had talked to mike santos who's their assistant gm at the draft santos gives richie my number i he calls me up says you know would you be interested in interviewing so i get on a plane to the states i've never been to new york before i land get picked up by a limousine takes me out to the to long island i roll up in long island there's absolutely nobody there the biz the the stadium is is shits i walk in there's no one there i'm walking around like then richie comes out of one of the dressing rooms like hey and richie's a a funny guy but he's like what you doing and i'm like i'm scott oh yeah come with me so i come with him i talk to him for about 15 minutes he takes me to meet the assistant GM who had just been engaged. Now, if you've ever seen uh, ESPN 30 on 30 about the guy who bought the New York Islanders, I forget his name, but he basically, there, there's a, you watch a 30 on 30. This guy tried to buy the team the year before I came in. He had no money, but he faked everybody out and made them believe that he had money. And he was driving around a limo, sitting up in the box. Finally, by mid through the year, they realized this guy's this guy's not for real. He has no money and this is all bullshit. So another guy comes in and buys the team. So this is the owner as I'm coming in. I don't know any of this stuff. <clears throat> so I get taken down to Elliot Pellman's office. Now, Elliot Pellman's the chief there internist for the team. But if you have ever seen the movie Concussion or read the book, Elliot Pellman was the chief internist for the NFL at the time. And he actually got in a bunch of hot water around the whole concussion thing. So I meet Elliot Pellman in this big, in his big institution. I walk in, you got, you know, NFL stuff all over the place. And this is, you know, this is the cat's meow of professional sports medicine, you know. So I interview with Pelman and Pelman's asked me these questions and I kind of finish and he says to me, um, so, you know, we'd like to hire you. And I'm like, okay. And so he says, uh, when are you available? And I said, well, I could probably come back down here in two weeks from now. I, I don't even know what this all means. He goes, this is Friday. He goes, we need you here Monday. 
Monday. So I fly back to Canada, get all my bags. I fly back, you know, with two weeks worth of bags. I do a training camp with Richie and Sean Donnellan and do all this stuff. They hire me and then I come back and I take my first job with the team. So I'm learning on the job what all this is. I don't know. I don't know what pro hockey is. I don't. All I know is I'm 35 years old. I think I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I get my first job at the Islanders. We go to training camp in Lake Placid. Um, and, and this is my first NHL training camp. So we get to Lake Placid and we've all gone up and, you know, as you guys know, we're in the, the box trucks and the players have all flown up and we're in these box trucks. We get there and the players aren't there yet. We're unpacking all the gear and stuff. We go into this nice bagel shop and, and, and I, always, I always remember it and sitting down and the head therapist or head equipment manager gets a phone call. He walks off, comes back, goes, we have to go back to New York. I'm like, he's, he's like, what's going on? He goes, the, the owners pulled out of the lease of the building. So the owner, in order to leverage the Long Island lease, basically said, we're, we're leaving. So we have to go back. This is my first camp. I don't even know what the hell is going on. We have to move everything, physically move, like movers, everything out of this building telephones like every piece of equipment we move it out we take it to Elliot Pellman's offices we put it in the bottom the next day we run testing I have to out of my ass I have to create a testing protocol and run it out of this thing then we fly back up to Lake Placid and it was supposed to be a seven-day camp it ended up being 26 days in Lake Placid and the whole time we were there they're telling us that we might play all of our games on the road for the year so this is my introduction to the NHL on top of that, I don't really know what I'm doing and nobody, like, the, the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hunting and pecking and trying and doing. And, and in that time, the supplements were a big thing. So we're making, we have blenders and shakes and all this stuff going on and trying to run stretches. And I've got all these older cats. There's, so there's this guy, Mike Huff, who's uh, at the end of his career. And um, I think Milbury plays a little joke, like maybe a joke, maybe a test on me. He says, you know, Scotty, take Huffer and skate him because he's not going to the game like there was an exhibition game. And Huffer's pissed because, you know, he wants to be playing. So I had, meanwhile, run the conference the year before and twist, Pete Twist is out and I had him do an ice workshop and he's got bungee cords and he's got parachutes and he's doing all this shit with these guys all these drills that he would do in the off season with guys, but I have no contextual understanding of this stuff. Right. So I get on the ice with Huffer and I'm supposed to run a, you know, an NHL skate with this guy one-on-one. Well, I don't bring any pucks out, which is the first thing that he's pissed off about. Like where he goes, where's the pucks. And then I pull out my, my bungee cords and I start making him do all this stuff. And he's looking at me like, what the F are you doing, man? Like just pissed at me. Right. Finally, he snaps on me and kind of walks away and, or skates away. And then Mike Milbury comes over and kind of pulls me off the ice. And that was the last time I skated anybody on the team. I had no, no idea what I was doing. Anyway, segue through the, the whole year was a gong show. One of the, one of the equipment managers used to keep singing like the circus song all the time. So it was just a, like you, you, you would, I, I could tell you story after story. I don't know how long you want me to go on, but it was a crazy year. So that was my first year in the league. Well, that, I don't know how much I segued on you, but that's yeah, so, so. <laughs> okay. So, so then in, you can fast forward. Eventually you, you were the Rangers and then eventually move on to Montreal over the course of, of the next like roughly 10 years in the NHL. How did you go from don't know what I'm doing to <laughs> competent NHL strength coach? 
Yeah, segue forward that year, I end up at such a gong show, I get an opportunity through a friend, uh, Jim Ramsey, who I knew to get the job at the Rangers. Now I go from the poorest team in the league to the richest team in the league. I go to a team that's got all these, you know, big, big wheels. They've just, they, they have, they sign all these free agents, uh, Theo Fleury. The next year I'm there, Mark Messier comes back. And actually one of the coolest moments of my career was I was running a preseason skate and I was skating with the guys and I, my line mates were Brian Leach and Mark Messier. I played, played with those guys. It was fun. So I'm starting to learn the game. I'm taking, you know, I basically started to recognize that I needed to understand how the game worked. I would spend time with assistant coaches and get to know drills. I would watch injury, injury skates and learn that. And I said to myself, someday I want to be able to go and skate the guys. Cause I felt as a strength coach that that was an important part of, and a therapist, I wanted to be able to take a guy from A to Z, any position on the, on the, in the team and, and work them through a whole injury rehab and take them and skate them and hand them back and say, this guy's ready to re-enter practice. So that became sort of a, a thing for me, but I wasn't really able to do it in New York. Um, you know, circumstances, situations, et cetera, didn't work out. And then I got canned at the end of my, well, I always remember Glenn Sather looking at me, inviting me down at the end of the season. Lots of changes going on. And he's sitting behind his desk like this with a big cigar in his mouth. He goes, Scotty, I'm not going to fire you. I'm just not rehiring you. And I was like, okay. So I, I go off. I, that was, that was a, the car accident and all that stuff. So I'm looking at the head therapist of the Canadians, Graham Reinbed, who is still there was actually a student of mine when I was in athletic therapy at Concordia. He, I used to have to sign for people. You supervise, you were a supervisory athletic therapist and I was Graham's supervisor back in the day. And then he'd gone on done his NHL career. So we start talking at a conference and he says, um, there's a job possibility. So I apply for it. I get the job. I come back up. So now I get the job in Montreal and I start working in Montreal. And at that point, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of made all my mistakes. I'd kind of screwed up enough things and recognized what I needed to do. And now I had this sort of new canvas in a place where the head therapist and the guys who were working there kind of recognized my acumen and strength. There was no ego clashes or anything like that. And so I had an opportunity really to craft my position there. Um, it was, I was coming in and they, they'd released their strength coach because they'd had three years straight of over 500 man games lost. So my role was to, you know, help bring their man games lost down, which, um, you know, I, I look back affectionately on my career. There are man games lost average over my career was 145, I think. So we, we brought it down substantially and we're able to keep it there. And so, you know, I was able to really develop a program, a system, uh, a testing system, a development system. I was able to hire some guys in the AHL. So that period of time was when the league was starting to really spool up. Mike, uh, I think, what year did you get hired in? Oh, uh, six. Uh, okay, so, you know, while I was there, Mike got hired, and Matty Nickel got hired in Toronto. So you started to see all the teams kind of engaging guys. And I was kind of there during that zenith of, of time. And um started to learn how to skate guys on ice. I would get on and I would take all kinds of abuse from the guys in my passing and my passing skills and stuff, but they would give me, you know, I interviewed uh, Shelly Surrey the other day on my, on my podcast. Sheldon Surrey was a, a good NHL defenseman for the Habs played in the all-star game a few times, heaviest slap shot. And Shelly and I did a few big rehabs together. And he, he's a guy who taught me a lot about the game. I would go out and just, and then, 
I became friends with the goalie coach, Roly Melanson, and learned a lot from Roly about goaltenders. Started training goaltenders really differently than, than players because of that and what I learned about it. And then, you know, by the time I finished my career in the league, I was proud. I can, I'm proud to say I could skate pretty much any guy, any position on the, on the ice, any number of guys I needed to skate. If I had three or four guys, I could run a, an injury skate. And that was something that I really enjoyed. I think that's, that, that's a, it's, it's, it is an important factor, you know, of, of an understanding, okay, what goes into an on ice conditioning type session. And, and, and I even think it's grown now, Scotty, too. In the summertime, I'll do all, I'll transition all the conditioning onto the ice for the guys, but I'll write that up in August for them and all the guys who come back leading up to training camp. And, and, and they actually appreciate it because now it's like, okay, we're doing a little bit less in the gym, but more specific stuff on the ice, you know, and, you know, I think I got thrust into the more of the rehab reconditioning side when I first got here in, in, uh, in San Jose and Ray Tufts is, uh, you know, great friend and, and great colleague, obviously here now at San Jose. So he's, he's allowed me to do everything coming from working with Mike. It was like Mike designed the rehab program and then intern like me at the time would just kind of implement it right. Um, with the trust of, from Mike, but I think that was valuable for me because the injury reconditioning piece became a big part. And, and, and I didn't, I, I wasn't an athletic training major. I was an exercise science major at Springfield. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, you kind of learn on the fly, but, but, uh, it, yeah, it is, a, it is a cool piece. What were, what was the climate like with the players at the time with strength coaches? I mean, uh, starting to get in the league, a lot of buy-in, a lot, a lot of great support from the players, or you had your, you had your difficult cases of guys you had to kind of use the cattle prod on. Yeah, well, I would say, um, you know, I experienced it in layers with the Islanders. It was it was a tough slog. Uh, a couple of um, players who a, a number of players who just didn't. You know, I asked Mike that when I did my podcast interview, he sound, it sounded like he had uh, he was lucky enough to have a few guys who maybe really, really enjoyed uh, training and sort of supported what he did in that that made a difference for him. In my early years, that was, it was a difficult slog. There were some guys who had some biases. You also had, I came in at a time where there was um, a bit of a cardiovascular bias. The, the league prior to probably the late nineties, early two thousands was more dominated by the, the paradigm of exercise physiologists. The early people who sort of influenced strength and conditioning or conditioning in the national hockey league were the ex phys guys. Cause what happened was back in the eighties, the NHL was getting pounded when they would play the Russians and they started to find out, well, their, their fitness wasn't very good. Then they started doing VO2 max testing and you were getting guys who were testing with fifties and 48s and 53s and stuff. And people were like, Holy crap, we got to have a VO2 max. So then they started training that. And so that became the bias for a long time, bikes, bike rides, training, et cetera. So when I came in, you know, with the Rangers, as an example, Howie Wenger was the, the lead physiologist and the strength side of it was kind of like a you know on a side piece and then uh, and so the guys they were like what is this weight lift you know what do we got to do this for why are we doing this and I always remember Charlie Huddy walking by one time and I was doing some stuff with a Swiss ball and he's like we never had that shit when I made you know played for we won four five cups or something like that (laughs) and I was like well yeah they and they don't run the same Daytona 500 car that won in 75 now either but you know great uh, point (laughs) so we you know we had our blasts back and forth so yeah there was stuff like 
I always remember Theo Fleury coming in. He would be like uh, absolutely uh, wrecked from the night before and want to get on the bike and turn the crank all the way down to zero. And you would turn it back up and then he would turn it back down. And then you'd have this kind of conversation along the lines of what Lauren had, you know, you'd, you'd get the come here and you'd come over and they'd be like, Scotty, we like you, but, um, you know, can you just uh, fuck off for a little bit? You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you deal with that stuff. And then, but by the time I got to Montreal, I think most of the guys recognized that it was something they, you know, that this supported what they did. But most of my wins with guys would come, you know, in those injury re- reconditionings, like a guy like Shelly, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't take responsibility for Shelly being who Shelly was, but I think I met him in a, a zenith period of his time of his career where he had to take things more seriously or he was going to lose his career. He took him more seriously. All of a sudden his slap shot was, you know, crazy and he was getting recognized for it. And then other players go, well, what's Shelly doing? I want to do that. And da, 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 da. so by the time I finished my career, you know, both on the outside and the inside, people were far more serious about training, which made it, you know, relatively easy but i i experienced all kinds of growing pains and then after those growing pains in the national hockey league you you kind of moved on and uh you're businessman now running running at reconditioning um so what i'm and you're still on the cutting edge like people talk about your reconditioning course all the time and mike and i still haven't done it um so i'm curious now where your interests curiosities problems in the field you're working to solve in in the last 10 years since you've left the nhl it's a, a great question, David. I mean, for me, my passion has always been in um, in this idea that um, making a better um, car, call it a car from A to Z, you know, working on the the brakes, on the transmission, on the engine, on the on the body, all these different elements contribute to the overall success of the race car, so to speak. And so that's always been my viewpoint versus, you know, horsepower, 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 or what have you. And so um, reconditioning is kind of a, a, to me, it's, it's a mindset framework for this idea of athlete resiliency, robustness, capacity, and recognizing that I want to make sure that I, I talk about both capability and capacity. They can do it well and they can do it at load, at speed, with repeatability, et cetera. That's, that's the premise of, and I don't, you know, the idea of rehab, for me, rehab is basically you got broken, now I'm going to fix you. Um, for me, reconditioning is you're not broken yet, but there's lots of things I can make better. So how can I do that? And you've been broken in the past and there's there's skeletons in the closet. How can I take care of those so that you don't have problems? And and so for me, that's where I've made my bacon, so to speak, in the industry. And when I left hockey, I, I did it with hockey players outside, with Olympic athletes, et cetera. Just a lot of the projects I would take us are, are athletes who couldn't be fixed or were broken or couldn't get back from something. And I kind of helped rebuild them to, to get to that place where they needed to be uh, performance capable again. Um, and fundamentally, my, my viewpoint, how it's informed me over time is that um, I, I, I'm a strength coach, just like everybody else. I love seeing a guy get in the rack and, and push big weights, just like anybody else. I lifted weights. I was a power lifter when I was younger. I love doing all that kind of stuff, but I also recognize that there's, you know, there's a certain point at which the return on investment, um, to increase your strength is, is minimal versus doing a bunch of other things. So if I'm, if I'm, 
tripling uh, 455 in the rack on a, on a full squat, is getting 475 really going to make that much of a difference in how I play hockey? Whereas maybe being able to do um, some other type of movement or action in a really high quality way is going to make a bigger difference. So I'm going to work on that. Or maybe just making sure that your hip dissociates from your pelvis properly instead of xyz is going to be more you know more beneficial to you than pushing more weight so where do we spend our time and and especially when i look at a hockey player this was always my viewpoint was early on in the in the in the integration of strength conditioning into hockey you had a lot of SNC people with a background of football came into hockey and started. In fact, the only reason I got my first job was because I was the only guy of 16 guys who interviewed for the Islander job who could actually skate. And so I, I, I get the job because I knew something about hockey. But fundamentally, if you look at hockey as a sport versus football, hockey is massively skill oriented. There are so many different skills in it. And that's why a Wayne Gretzky could be a Wayne Gretzky you know, and could be as successful as he was. Football is a physical game with skills. So it, it lends itself to you being explosive, powerful, fast as hell, all these things. They It differentiates you on the field of play. In hockey, still now, you can't make as big an argument for those things. You can, you know, where do you spend your time? On your stick handling, on your passing, on your, on your, you know, your, your movement acquisition in time and space on your reactivity, all those things make a huge difference on the playing field on the, on the ice surface, as much as they do your speed, your strength, your power. So you have to put energy into those things. How much energy do you have to improve all those buckets? So my viewpoint is depending on the animal that you have in front of you, you have to recognize where strength conditioning really is in, in, in the ROI of that athlete's world right so that's what informs me so every athlete i look at i look at you know what's going to make them better what's the roi of the work that we're doing in the gym comparatively to all the other things that they have to do to be really good at what they do uh, and some sports that performance paradigm is far more important than than the skills paradigm and some sports the skills part paradigm is far far bigger Scotty, you have such a rich background of experiences and, and you, you, you see it, you see the therapy side and you see the, the training side in such a, a really good way. Like if Scotty could go back to the NHL, if he wanted to, and if he wanted to, and what would, what would be his performance model? Like how would you bring two silos that at times they work tremendously well together at times, you know, there's, there's, there's turf issues between athletic training and strength and conditioning and not just in hockey, but it, that's, that's amongst the profession sometimes. Um, how do you bring those together knowing what you know and your philosophy behind reconditioning HQ and Scotty wearing a strength coach hat? How, what, would, what would, what would be your, your model, if you will? I really like that question, Mike, because it really speaks to why my wife and I started reconditioning. And it's not so much about the the technical practice of it. It's more about creating a language of common, common practice. So what I feel is the problem between both worlds to a degree still to, to this day is people don't speak the same language. Um, and it's I come from a province in Canada that's well known for being French Canada and so you have French and English in Canada and if I don't speak a little bit of French I can't really communicate with uh, with uh, a French person and vice versa they can't communicate with me as soon as we can sort of speak 
both languages, we can all of a sudden, okay, I recognize maybe a little bit more about your culture and you recognize a little bit more about my culture. And, you know, when we look at all the geopolitical stuff that's going on today, most of it comes from an inability to actually understand the other person. So it's the same thing in this. If you create a common language of practice, so I recognize, you know, when you're talking to me as a, if, if I put my therapist hat on and I'm talking to Mike and Mike says to me, you know, Scotty, uh, you know, in the rack, he can't do this and, and I'm having trouble with this. You just, I can't get his PR up because, you know, something's going on and I can't, and he keeps shifting at the bottom of his squat. I'm not really sure what's going on. We go in and we start talking and I start talk, talking to him and we have a common language. I can say to, to Mike, look, keep squatting him, Mike, but squat him maybe a little less, uh, less low. Right now he's got a little bit of a thing going on in his hip. I'm going to work on it. When I work on it, you do these stretches when he comes into the gym to, to support that and then have him squat here, maybe use this exercise as a different challenge instead. All of a sudden, a, I'm respecting Mike and what Mike's got to do, and he's respecting me and me what I got to do. So if I, one of the roles that I was interested in, if I ever went back to the league, but you know, you have to have your PhD and all this stuff, which I kind of think is bullshit at this point, but I, I digress a little bit because I don't think it has anything to do with your scientific understanding. The role of performance director, in my viewpoint, is an oversight position to recognize how you bring these people together and actually teach them a common language of practice and teach them to talk to one another and to respect one another and to work with one another. So I would, if I ever had a chance to go back in the league in that type of role, I'd love to do that because that would, that would be what I would manifest is how do we work together? Whatever the performance dynamics are, whether it's like for me, I'll tell you one of my beefs that's always been a problem is the mental preparation. Mental preparation being this, you know, black box silo over in the corner. All of us should know something about mental preparation. We should all be able to work with the mental preparation strategies of the main um, specialist in it and say, you know, what is Johnny working on in terms of his mindset? How can I support that in the gym by the way I coach him, the way I teach him? You know, you see the work that Brett Bartholomew is doing right now on communication and things. These are things that we should be doing in terms of how do we communicate to this avatar or that avatar or, you know, this kind of athlete, et cetera. And lastly, if, as I get on my soapbox, like for me, when I was in the league and I don't know what it's like now, but it's not uncommon in, prof in professional sport is you get hired and there's no professional development strategy other than your own professional de development strategy. In my viewpoint, that should be led by your, your, the thread of the organization, your leadership. So if I'm, if I'm the performance direct director at San Jose with Mike, I'm coming in and sitting down with Mike and I say, Mike, you know, from a, from a SWOT assessment, on our team, you're amazing at this, 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 and this, but this is where I think you're weak right now. So we're gonna pay for you to take this course, or we're gonna bring this person in to teach you these specific skills. Because if you know this, this makes our team 60% better. And so it take each of the people and upgrade their capacity all the time, just like you do with your, what does your computer do every, every 15 minutes of the day? Update, got an update. We should be doing that with our people in these performance teams. They treat them like a computer. 
you, you need to do your updates. Instead, what happens is you get these jobs, you're paid, you're not paid that much per hour. So you're working your ass off. You get to the end of the season, which there isn't much of one anymore and you're exhausted and you're, and, and so, you know, do you want to take a professional development course? Probably not, but you kind of drag yourself to the, the PHATS conference or the, the, you know, SCAF conference or whatever you guys are running now. And you kind of go, okay. And then you can, you're exhausted. So you have a few beers, you go to one lecture, da, 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 da. what I think should be happening is your education be happening while you're in season. You've got breaks, you've got moments, you've got time, you know, one hour presentation here, bring in a specialist who does this. Da, da, da. I mean, these teams, to me, you, you're you're driving Ferraris, but you're you're treating the people who, who the the people who take care of the Ferraris like they're they're you know corner lot um, you know uh, garage mechanics. What we should be doing is saying, hey, we've got skilled Ferrari engineers and mechanics. We want to upskill them even more, make them better, and we want to give them you know the time, the energy, the space, etc. So you got me on my soapbox, but that's my viewpoint. No, that's what that's what we want to hear. I I love that. I, I think we're very good as professionals of figuring out how to learn more within our profession. But, you know, like you said, leadership skills, management skills, um, stress management skills personally, right? Like mm -hmm. those are, those are important factors that maybe should be driven from a con ed experience from the top down, meaning general managers, assistant general managers and bringing it down. That's, I love that. That's great. Well, even if you look at your career, Mike, and you would probably agree with me, like, I said this to a friend of mine the other day, the number of times I've had to reach in my back pocket for that really cool technical acumen drill moment thing to fix a problem are few and far between, probably count 10 on my two hands. Most of the time, it comes down to two things, really good fundamentals and great communication and great connectivity with your athlete because you can have the greatest program in the world but if you can't connect with the people in front of you it doesn't matter so when you start connecting they want to do it and so it's all about connection it's connection with the therapists connection with your athletes connection with the head coach it's connection connection and connection the more we're connected and believe in the same thing the more success we're going to have the program is just a uh, you know it's it's like you need to have a good program but you need to have all this other stuff first yeah, communication definitely, like you said, could also solve a lot of our geopolitical geopolitical issues as well. So thanks, thanks for touching on that. Uh, just, just the last thing. This is on the topic of education. You have the International Hockey Performance Summit coming up on June 11th to the 13th. So, I'd like to give you the opportunity to like tell us on the topic of education uh, why why the summit exists and and what you're hoping professionals can get out of it. Well, like I said at the beginning, uh, I did a form of this back in 1998 and 1999. And uh, it was very well received at the time. It was a much smaller community um, because of life and everything got in the way. I never really came back to it. And every so often I would bump into Chris Poirier and Chris would say to me, Scotty, you should do that hockey thing again. And I'm like, yeah, it might be a good idea. Da, 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 da. And then for some reason last year, I can't remember when it was, it's two years ago now, I kind of said to my wife, you know, we should do the hockey summit again and make it happen. And then I just reached, I started reaching out to all the guys that I knew and just said, you know, well, would you come up and speak? Would you come on? They were all, yeah, like no problem. And the thing about the hockey fraternity, which I really love um, is unlike any, I don't know what it is, but unlike any other strength conditioning or performance community, there's kind of a, a real um, fraternal relationship amongst the, like the, a nice respect, a nice 
uh, care about each other and the sport. And I don't know how to really explain it. So when we ran last year's, unfortunately, we had to pivot and turn it into a Zoom summit. But, um, you know, I was excited to do it live. Uh, but it was it was great. Like the, the the presentations were great. I remember Mike saying to me, Mike Mike Boyle says to me, I hate I hate panel discussions, Scotty. He's like, I don't want to fucking do those and stuff. But then we started doing them, and he you know he finished things because I loved it. I would do this anytime. You know, like it, it was just something about the the people in the room and and having some fun. So after doing it, I said, you know what, I'm not going to let this die. I'll do it again. And so I did it again. And then Mike and I talked, and I knew that you guys were doing stuff with the, the strength coaches, the NHL, and that, that had been sort of moving along. And so I didn't want to uh, step on any of that, but be supportive of. So um, Mike and I have chatted on the phone a few times. So we're running it again this year, and I hope to do the live version next year and hope to keep it going because, you know, it, it's a great community, great people, and the sharing, shared capacity and understanding of the game and how it helps the game grow is, is really cool. So we're doing it June 11th to 13th. It's online and um, people who want to sign up, uh, you go to my website, reconditioninghq.com and there's a page on the Hockey Summit. And come join us. Uh, yeah, we'll have Zoom, links. Zoomology. Yeah. We'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes as well. So find it there. I think, uh, Scotty, it's, it is a tremendous event. It's in the collection of people who are involved in it are, are, are great. And it becomes where... I think we're both trying to do the same thing in terms of raise the bar within hockey for training. I mean, we're pretty specific in it, but I think everyone will agree. It's like, well, you know, what Scotty's sharing and what Mike and David and Scaff are sharing could be used for all athletes, really. You know, I mean, yeah, it gets into some specificity for the hockey player, but there's not a lot of things that you can't, that can't cross pollinate into other sports. I will say this it, to the listeners. If you haven't been on leave your mark, you have to listen to this podcast. Like I, Scotty, I fell in love with it. Like, I think because I'm very much, a, I grew up loving hearing stories from my grandparents and from my uncles and, and everybody. And, and to bring on the professionals that you do and get the background stories, it's awesome. Like it's just definitely enthralls me. And, and I think you do a tremendous job. I think David and I have successfully basically done your leave your mark for you (laughs) on this, on this, uh, this podcast, but, um, you know, so we didn't read you your uh, your horoscope, but you know we're we're happy. To have you. Thank you for everything. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I hope I was entertaining enough for uh, those who want to hear hockey stories and stuff. So it was it was fun. I'm glad you guys are doing this. is great to bring the community together and for people to connect with the. I know you're doing this veterans thing, so the old guard of people in the past who've contributed to the game. So it's fun. Thanks, guy. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye-bye, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find links to everything discussed at the official website of SCAF, ProHockeyStrength.com. The International Hockey Performance Summit is coming up in just a few weeks, June 11th to the 13th. I know Mike is speaking and lots of other of our past podcast guests are Vicky, Anthony Donskov, Matt Nickel. So a lot of our community will be there and be present. So head on over to Scott's home base, reconditioninghq.com to learn more about that. On our website right now, prohockeystrength.com, we just released, been releasing a lot of articles, a really fun one by our friend Joel Jackson on stair conditioning for hockey players. Really interesting concept. He looks at ground contact times, joint angles, lots of different variables that could make stair conditioning a valuable tool. So head on over to prohockeystrength.com to read lots of free articles, including that one.